This is the recording made in the chapel of the open book and it is number seven of the series entitled The Unity of the Spirit. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read together with us Philippians chapter 2. This Philippians chapter 2 is not in the first instance written to argue about the person of Christ, but to induce in the believer some sort of comparison, exhorting them to have the mind that was in Christ. And it says in verse 4, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. In verse 21, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. And Epaphroditus, he was sorry, not because he was sick, but because you had heard that he had been sick. So, the Apostle has introduced this mighty doctrine of the person of Christ as an aside issue. And that's even more direct than if he'd started off to tell you all about the deity of Christ. Because if Christ did not give up his own things for our sakes, then the argument's invalid, isn't it? So that he did lay aside a glory that's beyond our understanding. He did not think it a thing to be grasped at, to be on equality with God. He didn't hold on to it. And the word, no reputation, is in the original, to empty himself. And it finds an echo in the servant of God who mentions all this, because in verse 17, when Paul spoke about himself, he said, if I be offered, and that word is used in the Old Testament for pouring out a drink offering. The Greek word spend, oh my, would almost forgive anybody saying he spent himself. It's a good idea. So you've got the whole chapter, all focusing upon the thought that we should not really think of our own affairs and put them first. And he doesn't hesitate to bring in this most wonderful example that Christ himself, originally being in the form of God, voluntarily took the form of a slave for our sakes. Well now that's the one we're going to consider this evening in the unity of the Spirit who is going to occupy the central place. Surely our hearts say, Amen. For Philippians not only says that he stooped so low that it was not possible to go lower, but he's to be exalted so high that there will not be one knee in the universe that will not have to bow or one tongue that will not confess that he is Lord. Well, that's the one who is the central shaft in the unity of the Spirit in Ephesians 4. Shall we now turn back to that chapter to take another look at this calling and its consequences that we are dealing with in this practical working out of truth in Ephesians 4 onwards. We've looked at verse 4 and we find, we found, that there was a reason why the unity of the Spirit should not start with Christ. It should start with the one body, because unity involves oneness in this sense, that chapter 2 said there was a division, there was a middle wall of partition, there was an enmity, and that's gone. And of the two, the faction, 
of the two that were there. He has made one new man. And they are reconciled to God in one body. So, whenever you say the one body in Ephesians, it's a reconciled company unto God. And then he says there's one spirit. And Ephesians 2 says, and that reconciled company have access in one spirit unto the Father. So there it is again. The word hope doesn't come in the Ephesians 2, in the positive, it comes in the negative. It says that those who are now rejoicing in this wonderful calling and association were as Gentiles without hope or without God in the world, but so they've got a blessed hope, the hope of this calling. And then we come to the central shaft. We speak, and we don't want to correct one another every time, of a seven-branch candlestick. Now that's good enough. But it isn't so, is it? There are six branches and one central shaft that holds them all together. The one central shaft can stand by itself. But not one of the other branches can stand alone. They are united together and they are united to him. What's the good of rejoicing in the fact we're members of one body if Christ be not our head? What's the idea of talking about a blessed hope if Christ isn't going to be the one to fulfil it? What's the idea of emphasising the unity? For the unity will never hold all the unities that have ever been made. I've got that element of failure about them, but not this one. Here is the central shaft of this sevenfold unity, one Lord. When we go back to the Old Testament, we read, and I'm sure nobody's going to dispute this, the Lord is my shepherd. What do you say, what's that got to do with it? Well, in John the 10th chapter, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the good shepherd. And I've never met anybody yet who says, oh, oh no, the shepherd that David was thinking about wasn't Christ. So the two shepherds, there's one in the Old Testament and one in the New. And in the same chapter, our Saviour said, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and there'll be one flock and one shepherd. So Christ is the one shepherd of whether you belong to the Jewish flock or the Gentile flock, or fold rather. Well, that's awkward, isn't it? Because he must be the one shepherd then. Well, who goes out in the Old Testament then? Well, you say, nobody can go out. That's nonsense. Well, of course it is. The one shepherd of the Old Testament and the one shepherd of the New Testament is the same blessed person. Well, again, it's the great confession of Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. It's the great confession of the church today that the Jesus, the Jesus Christ is the one Lord. Are we going to say, oh, there's one Lord for the Old Testament and a different one Lord for the New? That's getting near the blasphemy. But you say, I don't, ah, we may say we don't understand. And the one who's talking to you confesses he doesn't understand. But we're here to see what God has told us and grasp as much as he will enable us and leave the complete explanation to the day when we shall know, even as we are known. So the one Lord of the Old Testament and the one Lord of the New cannot be in conflict. And here we have this one Lord. What do we know about this one Lord 
I mean, just take a sort of a run through the scriptures of the New Testament. Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundations of the earth. Would anybody who hadn't got some preconceived idea say, oh, that can't refer to Genesis 1? Fancy. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and thou, Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundations of the earth. But that doesn't mean the same thing. It must do, mustn't it? But you say, if you, if you say that, then the Lord Jesus Christ is the God of Genesis 1 verse 2. Well, suppose he is. Supposing that's true. Supposing that for all the period we call time and all the ages that are all, the, the infinite, eternal, absolute, unknown God has been represented all the time by this one that we know who came to be a man and is now at the right hand as God manifest in the flesh. The scripture is not, the Hebrews is not the only passage that says he created. Hebrews is, is very definite, but John says all things were made by him. And one, and Colossians even goes further and says that he created all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. This is the Lord. Well then again in the Gospel according to Matthew, he says this, he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath day. This Son of God. So that he's the Lord of Genesis 1, and he's the Lord of Exodus 20, Mount Sinai, because there we get the giving of the law which involved keeping the Sabbath with all its consequences. And we move, of course, into the New Testament, and it may be accidental, but it's still very significant that the very first title that the Apostle Paul ever gave to Christ was not Jesus or Christ, but Lord. What wilt thou have me to do? And the word Lord always involves the idea of a master who has the right to command, and it is translated in Ephesians, masters, with regard to servants. But he's more than a master to us, and we would be unwise to alter the translation. He's Lord, in a fuller sense. And the very last verse of the Acts of the Apostles, which finishes Paul's teaching so far as history is concerned, he there was speaking about the things that belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. No man for, for, for forbidding him. He didn't say Jesus Christ. He didn't say Jesus, as he said a little bit earlier, speaking to the rulers of the Jews in the same chapter. It's the Lord when he's speaking out of his own heart. And then you may remember in Romans the 14th chapter, you may look at that one, because it is uh, an important passage. In fact, they're all important. But time sometimes uh, goes by so quickly. In this 14th chapter, he's dealing with all sorts of things with regard to squabbles and troubles that people make over. He says, In that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. And the end of the structure is... Um, Verse 7 of the next chapter, Wherefore receive ye one another, as Christ also received you. Oh, what a contrast, the way in which some of God's people will receive you, and the way in which the Lord has received you. Now he says, Don't receive one another to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, and another who is weak eateth herbs, and one observes one day, and one doesn't observe. Oh, he says, look, look! Verse 7, 
None of us liveth to himself. No man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. And whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's three times over. To this end, Christ both died and rose and revived or lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. That's the emphasis. The risen, seated, ascended Christ is Lord. And then the passage you remember, of course, so vividly we had in Philippians 2. That he who descended so so low is exalted so high that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And you know as well as I do that that is a quotation from Isaiah 45. I have sworn by myself, said the Lord, that every knee shall bow to me. And the man, the bigoted Pharisee, who would have quoted that over and over again against the Christian, now quotes it and applies it to Christ. And he knows that five times over in Isaiah 45, there is none else. I know not any. None else. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none none else. And I have sworn by myself that unto me, the God beside whom there is none else, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And that's quoted by the Apostle in the chapter we read. Now that's the Lord who is the centre of the unity of the Spirit. Isn't it a wonderful unity? Isn't it a privilege to be associated with it in any shape or form. Isn't it a responsibility to hold to it against all odds? If he is the one in the centre and sanctifies all the other branches, it must be a matter of life and death to us rather than betray one element with regard to it. You see, in the early days of the Brian Expositor, I would have the suggestion made to me if I would only soft pedal about the one baptism. You see? It's such a disturbing thing. And you're not keeping the unity of the Spirit if you cause trouble among God's people. And uh, there's a possibility that you might get an opening in London and there you are. You see? But the Apostle Paul who's urging us to keep the unity of the Spirit put that disturbing thing in. And I must put it in, mustn't I? You must put it in. It's all a part of the thing entrusted to us and we cannot pick and choose. One Lord in the centre. Supposing we open the book of Ephesians and without stopping to even verify chapter and verse, run through this one epistle as quickly as we may decently and just see how the word Lord is used right through and what, with what associations. It would be worthwhile, I think. The 15th verse of the first chapter is the first reference. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, if you've got the Greek in front of you, you've got rather a curious bit to translate. It's the according to you faith in the Lord. According to you faith doesn't make sense in English. But it's a special thought that this faith is the one according to your calling which associates you with the Lord. And that's the faith that comes in the unity of the Spirit. That faith which associates you with that Lord. We come to chapter 2, 21. In whom all the building 
fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. So here we have a unity once more. This time, figure is a temple. Christ the foundation. But it's growing in the Lord. And then in chapter 3, verse 11, we have according to the eternal purpose, or perhaps not so magnificent in its sound, but more truly, according to the purpose of the ages, which he purposed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So this Lord, who is the centre of the unity, is the one in whom the whole purpose of the ages is centred to. And we are a part of the purpose of the ages, and we are just a symbol as it were, of the vaster thing, the wider thing that would include earth and New Jerusalem as well as far above all in God's good time. Or again, chapter 4. You notice we are turning to the practical now and all the rest of them, as many of them, come into practice. We have the prisoner of the Lord in verse 1 and we have in verse 17 I therefore testify in the Lord when this man bore his witness, he was conscious that it was in the Lord and in the sight of the Lord and under his control. And in chapter 5, we have in verse 8, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now ye light in the Lord. And in verse 17, Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And so it goes on, we have in from the verse 20, the singing with melody in your hearts unto the Lord. Uh, that is in verse 19. And uh, it goes on then and stoops right down to wives, 22, husbands, 29, children, chapter 6, 4. And again in the 8th verse, we have uh, knowing um, uh, servants, whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And we have again in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, he doesn't really say, be strong. He says, be strong in the Lord. And uh, lastly, verse 24, Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ. I've tried my best to pack that in a few minutes. But you see, that's the Lord who is the centre of this unity. He's the foundation of the temple. He's the main shaft in the seven-branch candlestick. He's the beginning and the ending of the purpose of God with regard to this calling. And whether it be doctrine or practice, he there stands preeminent. Well, now I think we'll look at another phase because it might be useful for us to go a stage further. There are two words in the Old Testament. When I say there are two, I'm not saying there are only two. But there are two words in the Old Testament that are usually translated one. And on the surface, they look alike, a little bit alike, and they sound a little bit alike. But they come from two distinct roots and mustn't be confounded. The first one is yakid, and I'll spell that in English letters, Y-A-C-H-I-D, and the other one is Eckhard, E-C-H-A-D. 
Now the first one is translated among other passages in Psalm 68. He setteth the solitary in families. And when the word yakid is mean, it means one and one only. Like an only son. No others in view. Yakid is a solitary one. And some folks' conception of God is that he's solitary. That he's sitting somewhere away in immensity. Uh, a little bit of a picture like one of those uh, Egyptian figures sitting staring into eternity. Solitary. Now the other word, Eckhard, although it's translated one, can never be translated solitary because it always seems to suggest a unity instead of just one by itself. Genesis 2.24 They shall be one flesh. Now what do you mean by that? It doesn't mean to say the moment of anybody gets married their individuality is annihilated. Well, it doesn't seem to be so, at least as far as I'm concerned. I'm married. And my individuality hasn't been annihilated. And yet, it's still true what God says. One. So this must be a oneness which is not solitary. Or again, one of his ribs. This is Genesis again. Well, Adam was like the rest of us. He got a few more. Of course, in the Middle Ages, they used to stand out against one another before they had anatomy that if you could only see, a man had one rib less. But when they had an anatomy, they found he'd got them all there. That was silly. But one of his ribs, he got plenty. And then, you say, oh, that's all right. That's only dealing with people. But Genesis still says, the man has become as one of us. Same word. Not solitary. One of us. Us too. is plural. And then, not to go and to extremes, those men who brought back the grapes of Eshkel, they brought one cluster. Well, you see, you can't, a cluster of grapes is a unity made up of more than one grape. Well, that's the word that God has chosen when it says, the Lord our God is one. And here's the point. If you could read, as I can, the Jewish prayer book, you would discover that Maimonides makes the prayer book of the Jew to say, Yaki, solitary, instead of Eckhard, a unity. Because they oppose the idea the Jew in his upbringing opposed the idea that there could ever be plurality. How he did that, I don't know, because the first verse of Genesis is, well, not, not correct grammar so far as you and I are concerned. In the beginning, Elohim, gods, plural, created, singular. Well, why did Moses get tangled up like that? Because poor Moses couldn't help himself. He had to speak the truth. He had to put down Elohim in the plural and say, created in the singular. So we are dealing with something quite outside the range of ordinary, everyday experience. Why not be content to admit that and say, well, all right. Our study is not to try to find out all we can about God. 
Our study is to try to find out all that he has told us about himself and then recognises a tremendous amount that it's no good telling us until we go up into another classroom. When I was at school, we first of all struggled away with very, very elementary arithmetic. And then when they went up to do another class, if they didn't upset the old apple cart and tell me to bo- not bother about it and start in some other way about it. And then I got tangled up for the rest of my life so that if you want a column of figures added up, don't ask me because they come different every time. You see, there are limits to our ability and God hasn't loaded us with it, but he's told us, hasn't he? He has given titles to his son that cannot be given to any mortal man. Emmanuel. God with us. El Gibor, the mighty God of Isaiah. Or the strange statement at the end of the book of the Revelation that Jesus Christ himself is the root and offspring of David, which makes nonsense if he's just an ordinary man. And so in Romans, according to the flesh, he was the seed of David. Well, how else can anybody come into this world if he's an ordinary man? But Christ wasn't, so it's put like that. Well, that's the one Lord, and we are associated with him. Or it should make us feel, unless I have a real right to be there, this is terrible, isn't it, to be linked with him, this one. But I have a right, friend. He's made it. This bond that binds me in the unity of the Spirit with such a Lord is called the bond of, not merely peace, but the bond of the peace. And I say, what peace? Peace through the blood of his cross. He is our peace of of the second chapter again of Ephesians. So I have no fear. Although I don't mean to say I've qualified or I've got anything to stand upon in myself. That's where I belong. To him. That Lord. With all those characteristics that we associate with him. Now, he is not only Lord. What else? Well, you know as well as I do that he's called Lord of Lords. So he takes it a stage further. Shall we look at the passage which teaches that? The first of Timothy, chapter 6. I think in order to emphasise what I have to say, we'll look at chapter 1 first, verse 17. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, Invisible, the only wise God, the honour and glory forever and ever, amen. Do notice these terms. Immortal and invisible. Now the sixth chapter. Verse 14. That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, so is immortal and invisible, the same, it's not exactly the same word immortal, but carrying the same thought with it, the same thing that's said in chapter 1 is said again in chapter 6. And this says that no man has seen or can see. So there's something about Christ that no man has seen or ever will see in himself. It's only in his condescension that we see and will ever see. 
And then in the middle of this epistle, you've got a very difficult passage, but it's the solution. On both sides, you see, in chapter 1, you have God invisible. Chapter 6, you have Christ invisible. In chapter 3, it says, same epistle, uh, verse 15, uh, you'll have to pardon this translation, although I, won't, I can't go into it now for time's sake. But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. Now that's the way in which the authorised version reads. And I could understand somebody being in the church of God called a pillar, for so Peter and James and John seem to be. But who in the church of God, like you and me, could ever be a basis, a ground of truth? Oh, you say it says so. The church is the ground of truth. Well, there's another rendering. And if you're acquainted with the Diaglot version, you'll find they have it. And this is what they read. This is a church in which Timothy can behave himself. So it's down here. This is a church in somebody's house who has a bishop with children that are going to be brought up decently. It's a local church. And a local church is never the pillar and ground of truth at all anywhere. So, it's a matter of punctuation. If I tell thee long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, full stop. Now then, I'm going to start something very, very different. A pillar, not the, a pillar and ground of truth and confessedly great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So there's the visible, and that's what Christ is set forth, as the image of the invisible God to us, from Genesis 1 to the last word of 1 Corinthians 15. When we get to the end, of which the beginning is there in Genesis, we get a son of God, voluntarily subjecting himself and handing to the Father a perfected kingdom that at long last God, not the Father, not the Son, not the Spirit, but God may be all in all and it hasn't come yet, but that's the goal. And I dare say I'll have a lot to, to learn and unlearn when that day comes and so will you. But that's the general feeling of it that so far as we are concerned in this limited life, God manifest in the flesh is the one that we must remember. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And can you not even feel almost the hurt feeling of our Saviour when he said, have I been so long time with you? He that has seen me, has seen the Father. As though it ought to become obvious. Well, again, that is the one Lord in this great centre. In the book of the Revelation, we have several titles, and they all bear upon this same thought. You do know, don't you, that the name Jehovah 
in the Old Testament is a composite word. There's a good deal of difference of opinion uh, about the composition of it, uh, but it resolves itself generally into certain parts of the verb to become, chopped up into pieces and joined together to make a word. As though, if you could expand its meaning, God said to Moses, this is my name. This is my memorial for all generations. It was, only, it was a time name, you see. All generations isn't eternity. And he says, I will become whatever is necessary for me to become to bring about this purpose. I will become. Now, will you look at the book of the Revelation? Verse 8. I am Alpha and Omega. Now, you know as well as I do, that's the beginning and the end of the alphabet. I am Alpha and Omega. And of course, if we didn't know that, we'd guess it by the next words. The beginning and the ending, said the Lord. And who is he? The Lord. Which is, and which was, and which is to come. Now, that's, an, that's a New Testament expansion of the name Jehovah. He who was, and is, and is to come. So this is taken by John and given to the Saviour. Then, you'll find by looking, I think it is at chapter 11, if I'm wrong, I'll soon rectify the reference. Um, no, chapter, yes, chapter 11. The seventh angel sounded, verse 15. And there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then in verse 17, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast. And then, if you read the text of the manuscripts, which are now much older than those which were in view in the authorised version times, that's, that's all it says. It doesn't say, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and washed, and art to come, because he's come, that's their sound. So the very name Jehovah fulfills itself until at last the whole purpose is finished. And then, the word Almighty. You remember that it says in this very self-same um, book of the Revelation, the Lord God Omnipotent I think that's chapter 19. You might like to see, in case I'm wrong. Yes. The Lord God... Now that word omnipotent is just the word we just had in chapter 1. The Almighty. The one who's come to reign is the Almighty. And it's not God in the absolute and invisible sense that comes with the angels and reigns it's the one we know as the Son of God. The one we know as our Lord. Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Omnipotent, the one who was, and is, and is to come, or as the Epistle to the Hebrews puts it, again, in the last chapter, Jesus Christ the same, yesterday, and today, and unto the ages. So there he is, 
That's the one friend with whom we are united. That's the one that in fullness of time undertook our redemption. That's the one in whom, as Ephesians 1 puts it, we were chosen before the foundation of the world. That's the one with whom we're going to be so associated in the glory that the church of the one body is said to be the fullness of him who in his turn filleth all in all. Oh, what a Lord we have.